I first started, you know, community conversation in 2017, whereby I had many of our children from diverse backgrounds as panelists come and talk about their struggle, what it is to grow up in this country. Mm-hmm. Because like I've been saying, in terms of understanding that as an African, we only have immigrant experience, we don't have black experience. We could tell these children, we want you to go to school, be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. But then they have to face the whole society in itself. And if I am not prepared as a parent to understand the dynamics of this society, there's no way of me being able to advise them. I could be a parent who went to school and study. I could have a PhD. I could have all these degrees behind my back, behind my name. But then there's another dynamics that comes with raising these children in this country as an African, as an immigrant. So first is to create open dialogue, to be able to allow our children to express themselves, to learn to listen to their perspectives. Hello, family. You are listening to Concrete Pastures. I am Nancy Mulemwasisi. Being an immigrant has been one of the most challenging and extraordinary experiences of my life. It inspired me to create a platform to reach out to my fellow immigrants and dreamers. The goal is to provide a space for myself and others to share our stories as we deconstruct the world's view of immigrant status. We discuss issues that are important to us in the diaspora. We celebrate the joys, the laughs, the bravery that being an immigrant brings. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We appreciate your support. To all of our new listeners, welcome to the family. You can continue to support us if you haven't already by downloading our new app, and it's completely free on Google Play. You get access to our whole library, our YouTube channel, our website, our social media, and this podcast. While you are there, we are an independent podcast. You can support us by giving us a donation or buying our merchandise and 50% of the proceedings go back to our veteran that makes them. We love hearing from you. Our guests love hearing from you. So if anything resonated with you from this episode, please feel free to reach out to our guests and you can feel free to leave us a review as well. Thank you so much, FMG Radio, for continuing to support us and giving us visibility on their platform. On today's episode, I am super duper excited. I've been looking forward to this episode, to recording this, and I am so happy. I'm so grateful to Dr. Bukhari for introducing us. Um, I am a student of her work. I'm just in awe of her library of work. Please, as you listen to this episode, I encourage you to look up her platform. You won't be disappointed. Without further ado, 
Let's meet our next guest. Ms. Kimi Sereki is a Nigerian immigrant from Yoruba ethnic diversity. As a typical story for all of us immigrants in America, Ms. Sereki migrated to the United States for a better life in the early 1980s. Since moving to the United States, she completed her master's degree and is a proud mama of two adult children. She's a blogger and many issues she writes on focus on the life of African immigrants. In 2017, Ms. Sereki launched Pasa Pasa Forum to start a conversation about the first and second generations of African immigrant children growing up in the American society. As many may know, the African community is often divided along the line of countries of origin, religion, and ethnic background. The forum's vision is to include African children from various ethnic backgrounds in the conversation. The purpose of the discussion is to create an open platform for the children to express their challenges as they try to balance the two worlds of having an American identity and maintaining their African heritage. In March of 2021, Ms. Sereki launched Pasa Pasa Podcast to move the discussion to a global platform to attract more diverse participants to the dialogue. And the podcast is now in its fourth season. The conversation on the podcast continues to focus on the life of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise their younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. Ms. Sereki believes that education does not end after graduation, that one needs continuous engagement in self-education. As an avid reader of various interests, she enjoys reading scholarly publications on numerous discussions, including mental health, race relation in America, and African, African and African-American history. She also participates in various conferences in the community on race in America and white privilege, social justice, gender inequality, and African forum focusing on African issues. When she is not busy on projects, she enjoys reading, listening to music, writing, engaging in conversation on social and political issues, and also, most importantly, storytelling to the audience, the young and the elders of the community. Welcome! Ah! Wow, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to your platform, and, uh, I, and I hope we continue to work together from here on. Oh, for sure. You stuck with me. I'm sorry for you, but you are stuck with me. <laughs> I, I, I'm just grateful for Dr. Bukhari. just like, you don't know, Pastor Pastor. I'm like, what? What do you mean? I was Googling more on the phone, me and him. I was like, wait, let me, let me look around. It's like, you need to connect. I was like, okay, right away. <laughs> so welcome. How are you? Fine, thank you. You know, so I said I have to take today, no matter what, and you know, have a talk and chat with you and yeah. see how everything goes. No, yeah. I'm so excited to have you on. And um, as we start, our we always start from your origin country. How was life in Nigeria before you moved to the US? 
Well, you know, when I first, uh, uh, when I was back home, actually, uh, I was living with my mom. You know, it was around that time in the 80s that I just graduated from high school. So immediately after high school, I had the opportunity to come to the U.S. to come and study. And uh, when I came to this country, yeah, at that time in 80, in 1982, actually, Nigerian money has much more better value oh. than dollars. Wow. Nigerian Naira was equal to $2 because, you know, our economy was so successful. We had oil, you know, U.S. actually begging people to come to the United States. So most of us that came around that time, most of the time was, you know, just to go to school and go back home. You know, we're not thinking of actually staying because we felt like, you know what, let me just go and do my study and, you know, go back home and see what I can do. But uh, back to, you know, before I migrated here, you know, back home um, as a girl, it's very difficult for your parents to let you go, especially my father didn't want me to travel abroad without Mm -hmm. actually having to have a husband (laughs) to go and meet. Because at that time, they, many parents didn't believe. My father was like, you can't go to United States by yourself. Even though I had a brother here at that time. And, you know, so many people that I grew up with in Lagos, mm-hmm. you know, where I was born, were also here. But he didn't believe that a young girl like me, just graduating high school, should come to United States and mm-hmm. come and study without having a husband because they are quote unquote what you could be doing is like you know maybe you might be sleeping around with different men and you know all that stuff you know because it's only men male child that they feel like you know they approve for them to travel abroad without being worried about them so but i came anyway you know so at that time staying with my brother doing all jobs from here and there (laughs) <laughs> you know, <laughs> I remember the first job that I got was um, a central, central, uh, central, Grand Central on 42nd Street. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Working at um, a company called Zaru ba- Zaru's Basket. It's like a breakfast area where they sell bagel or bagel and, you know, you have to make the bagels for the customers. And, yeah. and it was crazy at that time. I mean, the people coming from different parts of the state stop by uh, Grand Central to get their breakfast. And I said, I can't do this job. I lasted a week and I, <laughs> I, said, I said, I can't, I can't do this job. I have to go somewhere else. You know, so you, you know, you do fewer jobs here and there and everything. And, you know, you keep going to school, doing what you have to do. And at that time, when people come from home, we're kind of clustered together. Yeah. At that time, you will know the Nigerians are kind of like live within the same area. You know, you have some Ghanaian group, you know, you see some Ethiopians, you know, everybody cluster among themselves. But, you know, it wasn't purposely to actually, you know, stay here. So where people will ask you, did you register for school? Okay, this is how you're going to do your your application, you know, go and register for do school, do this, do that. And when it comes to actually, you know, uh, having a good time, we all call each other to have a good time together in each person's apartment. You know, so that was the really background. Then until later on that uh, you find out that the economic situation in all part of Africa was, you know, kind of uh, depreciating, mm. you know, uh-huh. things were not going too well. 
this uh, structural adjustment program whereby African government were being asked to borrow money from, you know, IMF, money value continued to decline. So you find out and say, wow, what is really going on? And, you know, by the time I graduated college, I said, you know, uh, let me even see if I can go back to school. There's a program they call AIB, African American Institute of Banking. I said, let me go and do AIB a little bit. And uh, maybe if I go back home, I'll be able to work in a bank and everything. But uh, by that time, you see that people who already went back home are coming back. Because the value of the Naira was going down. And people were saying, you know what, let's, um, you know, some people were coming back and they said they will just have to take two homes. Then you understand that, you know why, you are now stuck, you know, in this yeah. country. Because, you know, back home, uh, the people that they used to, the jobs that used to be available is no longer available. You know, so you end up staying. So that's how, <laughs> you know, I've been staying here. Interesting. Yeah. How was New York in the 1980s? Because I've heard stories. I, I would love to hear from you. <laughs> how, how was New, it? New York in the 80s, it was okay. You know, the train wasn't that clean. At that time, you see all kinds of graffitis all over the walls and everything, mm. you know. But when I first came to this country, I was in Maryland with my uncle. Got it. But then my brother, who was here before me, said, you know, why don't you come to New York, you know, and then see how everything was. So in Maryland, we're living in a private house. You know, everything is so, it's like a suburbs area. Yeah. at that time and then when i came to new york my brother drove and his friend they drove me all the way to new york so we came on george washington bridge and exit to jerome avenue i said where am i the Bronx. how come this place is so <laughs> is so dirty like this you see the walls and everything i said wow what is going on here but at that time you know you find there's more connection to the community you know whether you African Americans, you know, you uh, uh, from the Caribbean or Latino, there's much more of a connection. But at that time, it wasn't too much of a crime like this that is going on right now. That they have level of gang uh, violence, gang affiliations, and all that stuff. So it was much more. Things were more calm at that time compared to now. What did you study? I, I for my undergraduate, I did to <laughs> I did banking and finance. I went to Beirut and I did banking and finance. And then, like I said, the purpose, I actually work in a bank. I worked at Chemical Bank. Okay. Chemical Bank was one of the banks that, one of the major banks in New York City, then later on merged with Manufacturer Anova, which later on merged into Chase Bank. <laughs> so... Uh-huh. So when it was Chemical Bank, I was working there after graduation, you know, doing customer service. And uh, I actually intended to go into uh, investment banking. But then when you people see you that, you know, you have an accent, you know, you're a black person. I remember I, the, actually the branch I was working at that time was on uh, 90, uh, 90th Street on Broadway. That was the branch I was working as a customer service rep. And you see many of these white people who come into the branch, you know, and they sometimes when they see a black person, I remember one white woman who came in and she said, where are the blonde and the blue eyes in this place? No. Yes. 
you know that was that was early 90s where the blondes and the blue eyes so but can compare and every investment advisor that comes to the branch mostly they are all white most of the black people are the customer service rep the mm-hmm. tellers and you know all this sort of that's the only position that you could you could get you know so from there and i said you know what let me just change my you know uh, focus so i went to get my masters in public health how are you able to navigate racism like plainly like that like how are you able to because uh, when we are back home in, in most mm-hmm. of the countries in africa mm-hmm. we're not reminded of what color of our skin mm-hmm. and until we come here or mm-hmm. until we travel someone reminds us like you're actually mm-hmm. black Mm-hmm. And then your accent it also just gives it away and it's a whole on a different level of racism. It's not even like you're African American but you're just African and then your accent is also plays a factor in that. How were you mm-hmm. able to navigate that? Well, you know, uh when it comes to just like you said when we were back home nobody knows whether you're black white. I didn't even I didn't grow up in a society that talks about race. The color of your skin is all about ethnicity where you came from. You could move to from Lagos to Ibadan to Kaduna, the northern part of Nigeria. Nobody will question about your color of your skin, but it's not all about ethnicities. But coming here it was something completely different for me as an immigrant and for so many people who are also immigrant. If you look at the immigrant African immigrants mostly, you know, most of us go to school. You know, we study, we did a lot of all these other things thinking that we're going to reach above somewhere. But, you know, you are not just face institutionalized racism about black and white. You also face racist biases from other people of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. who looked at you and tell you that you don't really belong here. So as an African, I'm not just facing the challenges of racism, which is institutionalized racism in terms of, you know, this is how this institution was built on the idea that white supremacists continue to be the power to be. But then as an immigrant, you also face the challenges from other minorities who look at you as others. That's why on my blog I wrote about a year ago <laughs> I titled it How I Became Black An African Immigrant Experience with Race and Identity. I've had some experiences in um in Harlem and in, throughout my corporate career I've had some experiences where um my fellow African uh, African Americans actually no white person has actually called me racist. African Americans bluntly telling me that I'm racist because uh, they didn't get their way or they wanted something I couldn't do it for them. I I work for uh, in banking and I started my career in Harlem. The first mm-hmm. time the gentleman that was in front of me at my window when I was a teller calling me a racist. I kind of like back back cuz I didn't think of it as mm-hmm. I, I was just like shocked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was stunned. Like I, I can't even explain it even to today. Mm-hmm. Like the feeling, and then it became like a trick or effect. Somebody else in the back also said the same thing, and then because once when someone when someone is in line, it's like 
trickle effect. Somebody else mm-hmm. was like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. If I if I want to get my way, I'm gonna have to call her a certain name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then years later, I think it was last year, <laughs> someone was having challenges taking out money at the ATM. I go to help them. African American man. And he, he first says that the ATM is racist. It's picks and chooses. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's something wrong here. So I said, ah, I mean, it's the machine. It doesn't really know who's taking out money. I'm trying to explain, but I shouldn't even have gone that further. <laughs> I realized later, I was like, that was no need for me to even explain that the machine couldn't. But then he turns around asking, I think you are also racist because you are not, you're telling me that this is not racist. I, I couldn't get used to that. Yeah, it's really, it's really mind-boggling and it's really sad. And uh, like I was saying, as an immigrant, when you come to this country, nobody called you aside and said, um, you understand the issue of white privilege and the issue of racism in the country. Yes. But it's not as an African, you go to Southern school, somebody pull you aside and said, you're going to experience this thing. This is the, the sign mm-hmm. <laughs> of racism that you have yeah. to go through. Okay. But you learn along the way. So even going to college, when I took classes in black studies, black studies, you know, that I took, the class that I took in black studies only taught me about slavery, about Jim Crow, about, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff, civil rights movement. Then after that, everything is fine. That was what we were taught academically in college when you take classes in black studies. But then to learn about issue of race and realizing the, you know, to give you certain example of what it is to experience racism, because as an immigrant, you might be experiencing it. You don't even know yeah. that that was what you were experiencing because it's not part of you know, your upbringing or, you know, your experience as an immigrant. You only have immigrant experience. You don't have black experience, you know. So you tend to go with the flow. Yeah. And you wouldn't know that that's what you, because there's other microaggression that comes into play and is directed towards you. And you're not, never going to know that that's what you are experiencing. So for me, after, you know, during college, you know, and uh, intermingling, you know, because I tend to diversify my friend groups, you know, when I finally decide to stay in this country, whereby I have many African-Americans, you know, co-workers. I have people from the Caribbeans with my co-workers, the Latino who are also my co-workers. They actually expose me to books. And one thing about me, when I'm interested in something, I continue to dig in. I read. I pick it up. Okay, I go to different lectures. I don't even mind paying money to go to lecture just to go and listen, you know, to what they are to share during the conversation. So that's how I became much more aware of the issue of race and continuous the way this system is built. Even in educational system, even in um, corporate world, corporate America, even within the city government in itself. Because all those things will will not be introduced to you in school. And it actually made me to become much more aware 
that I'm not just being discriminated against because of my skin color. I'm also being discriminated against because of the country of my origin. Because I'm a female. Okay, for all those things, if you're a Muslim, that's another layer that comes into play. So a lot of things that you experience, you know, like that, and then shedding over to our children who were born here. As an immigrant parent, I, you have your two children. You're never going to tell them how they have to navigate through the system as a black person. I didn't know African-American talks to their kids about code switching. This is how you conduct yourself when you're around white people. <laughs> this is, you know, but as an immigrant, you have to just tell your children to conduct themselves outside to be respectful of who they are, to carry themselves with sense of pride. But for African-Americans, they talk out to their children. When they come across police, how do they come to conduct themselves? They, they talk to their children about code switching. When you are in a corporate world, when you are in college, how do you navigate through all that? Which is so foreign to so many of us who are immigrants. Yeah. And nobody's going to teach you. So it's so broad and I don't want to occupy. <laughs> no, it, it, it is very broad. I don't mind you sharing like an example of the microaggression, just in case, you know, there's every day somebody new is coming to the US or mm-hmm. traveling as mm-hmm. an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, all over the world just giving some examples of what you experienced in the past but and i'm also going to go into detail about our children uh-huh because i know so that the majority of the work that you do and i'm yeah I, I yeah. For it. <laughs> yes so some of the microaggression may come in some comments that somebody may say, oh, I remember somebody asking me one time and say, how does it feel to live inside a mud house? Because the person thought that Africans, even with this age of, I mean, at that time, you know, you, you can't really find the internet. So most of the stuff that they see is through National Geographic. And I, I, you know, sometimes I joke about things and I said, you know, we're not even living inside. Those are for the rich people who live inside mud house. Only rich people and the royal family actually live inside mothers. But for my family and many people that I know, average, we live in, in, on a tree. So we <laughs> jump from one tree to the other. And I, I will act according to that. And that person, you know, will look at themselves and say, did I just ask that? Because that's my answer to that person. And I keep moving. Because sometimes you have to understand how not to let it soak inside you? Because if you think too deep into it, it will control you all the time. I was, um, I remember in my son's school, I was waiting for an elevator. And before I got there, there were two people who were waiting. One white teacher and one Latino student. And I was waiting too. So the moment the elevator came, they decided not to go in. Yes. And I went in, I pressed the elevator. And I went to the floor I was going to. So my interpretation to that is that this elevator is only fit for a coin. So <laughs> I'm supposed to be the coin to get in by myself without being occupied by others who are not supposed to be in the same elevator with me. I love that translation better. So that's how I translate. I've been to Central Park. 
you know, because I love to go to the park in the summer, just sitting down there, reading my books or listening to my music and everything. And I walk around all over the places and I couldn't find a bench to sit. So there's this guy, he's a Jewish guy, he was wearing his, um, you could tell from the outfit and everything. So sitting on one end of the bench and I came and I sat on the other end of the bench and he looked at me like, why are you sitting here? And I looked back at him and I kept, I sat, sat down and I was reading my book and he packed himself up, picked up the stroller and he left the bench. You know what I did? I threw my bag on the other side and I stretched on the bench. I said, yes, I need to stretch my leg. Thank you for leaving. <laughs> I just love you. I love it. <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only way I could deal with it. I, I, I love because... it. Like, I, I'm thinking of all my experiences that I've been put through. And I couldn't... I, I was always in shock. So I didn't have the time to actually react the way you reacting. No, but sometimes it's true. It's true experiences. Being an immigrant can be hard. Having been away from my home country for over 20 years has allowed me to experience these hardships firsthand. Throughout my journey, I've had a lot of challenges that were hard to bear. Juggling adjustment to a new country, obtaining my immigration papers, getting married, having children, establishing my career, and finding time for myself. Even though I've always had faith, I also relied on therapy which gave me the tools to cope with the issues life brought me. My fellow dreamers, let's remove the stigma around therapy and normalize seeking help with today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Go to betterhelp.com slash pastures for 10% off your first month of therapy with BetterHelp and get matched with a therapist who will listen and help in as little as 48 hours. Because even at the job you work, I'm writing a report, you a supervisor, you're going to review my report that I wrote because you think I speak with an accent, so I must write with an accent too. Yes, yes. So as a supervisor, you took a red pen because you think you're going to review my grammar. So I said, okay. So after this supervisor finished reviewing it, I took my paper. I said, so this is what you changed. So I went back. I took a red marker and I changed everything back to what I wrote before. And I uh, brought a dictionary to him as well as structured sentence. I said, do you make sense to this kind of sentence? I said, so next time, do not change what I write. Yeah, big. Because I, 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 even though we're colonized by the British, okay, I write Queen English. Yeah. Okay. This is the microaggression that you will face. And in many of my experiences, only when I'm around the white people, I, I mean, there's so many of them that uh, my, my children, the school they went to, is mostly uh, occupied by many whites. It's something that certain things will happen, certain things will be said, but it's not as much as what I experienced from other people of color. It, it, it's so funny. It, it, one day I'm taking my, uh, my daughter was sick when she was so little. So I 
finished with the doctor. I took her to the doctor and we finished with the doctor. So I call an Uber. A lady comes driving the Uber uh, from her accent, just saying hello. She sounded like she, she was from the Caribbean. I get in the car. My daughter is sick. You know, when your child is sick, you feel more as a parent than mm-hmm. the child. I was overwhelmed. I'm sure mm-hmm. she could see it in my face and everything. So she turns around. She she, she looks uh, at me and, and my daughter, and she goes, oh, "Are you the nanny?" <laughs> so I I I I, I looked at her. I, I'm still shocked that this this is coming out of her mouth. I process things very slowly. Mm-hmm. So she tells me that, and then I say, "No, I'm her uh, I'm her mom." Oh, she's too pretty for for you to be her mother. Oh wow. I, I'm like, why am I experiencing this with my own people? Yeah. And like everywhere else I go, everybody kind of acknowledges that, oh, that's your child, that's your child. She's fair skinned. She looks close to being Spanish than uh, a, a black person. But at the end of the day, she's still going to be a black person regardless of her mm-hmm. skin tone. Mm-hmm. But it, the fact that she actually even turned around and she looked at me, she's like, she's too pretty for, for, for you. I'm like, why? as black people, we can't make beautiful kids? I, I'm confused. Mm-hmm. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything to her. And I processed it later. After That's the only thing I've actually been able to share with, with other people. When I sat down, I said, my sister-in-law, I remember at the time, she wanted to just... Why didn't you say something? I'm like, seriously, my child is sick. I'm sitting behind the car of this this lady. And I was just shocked that my own people would feel the need, I guess, to put me down in a way that she did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the sad part of things. Even um, um, when you have a child who is uh, biracial, you're going to work. There's a lot of work for you to do. <laughs> there's a lot. But there's a lot of work to... for me to do. And then to mm-hmm. receive it from my own people. I'm like, yes. why? Yes. Yeah. Because also, uh, she's going to be looked at that she's not black enough. The same way they look at Kamala Harris. Yes. The same way they look at uh, 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 President Obama. Yes. Yes. Okay. So they, Kamala Harris' father is from Jamaica. The mother... Is from you know from uh, from India. They're mm-hmm. still not black enough. So as long as your heritage is doesn't come from you know the time of you know those who were brought here, our ancestors who are also Africans were brought here during slavery to this country. Those are the people who could be lawyer, doctors, engineer, everything that they could develop that continent. Yes, but they were brought here. Even though, you know, they, 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 they work free labor, abuse, raped, name everything that, you know, those our ancestors from the same continent went through. So then you have some African Americans who are actually dividing and separating and say, you belong, you don't belong. Your ancestors didn't come from slavery. You are an immigrant. Recently, was it two years ago, there were some African-American children in Ivy League school who were protesting against 
children of African and Caribbean who are in their schools, saying that they taking their space of affirmative action. You know, affirmative action is uh, whereby the colleges have to make sure that they accept certain number of, you know, yeah. people of different race, you know, yeah. even women and everything. So mm-hmm. they are saying that African immigrant children who were born here or Caribbean immigrant children who were born here or brought here at a very young age are taking their space. So there's a lot to actually, you know, deal with. And as a parent who never went through, okay, who does not understand all this, okay, how can you teach your child? How can you prepare your child for that world? I don't even know like how I'm going to prepare my kids about their own world because it's new to me. I don't understand it. I was born black and I don't know their world. Mm-hmm. And so some will even tell you, you ever seen some, you know, when some of the Africans who, you know, maybe speaking their language, that's why I've been in this country. I will never change my accent. Some people will tell me, oh, you've been here. You never change your accent. I say, that's you telling me I should change my identity. Do you ever ask anybody from Europe to change their accent? Yeah. Okay. You know, my girlfriend, one of my girlfriends and I were talking uh, of the corporate world mm-hmm. where, whereby someone from Europe is considered cute, sexy when they have their accent. When it comes to uh, Africans mm-hmm. or Caribbean and we are talking about, we're talking with a heavy accent, it's more like, oh, they need to be more educated. They, they need to, uh, mm-hmm. need to be more corporate. Per se, but mm-hmm. everybody else, it is cute. It's it, it, it's it's very mm-hmm. accepted. That's what it is. It's accepted. It's, it's sexy. Australian accent is you know is 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 accepted. You know, yeah. and you know so. But for you as an African, and I said, you know, that's my identity. It's like you saying, I should I should switch my brain. I should deny myself everything that brought me to who I am. Today, every part of my culture, my heritage. Actually, I did a podcast uh, recording and I have uh, three of us discuss about the how culture, okay, affects the way you express an emotion. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The impact of cultural heritage affects the way you express your emotion. So you want me to deny all that deny my language, my food, my everything. Even you asking me to change because I can't change my name. <laughs> even many of our children who were born here, they have to be at their fat, you know, even though you might call them Stephanie, you might call them John, yeah. but they still have African last name. They might not have an accent, but somebody could look it up and say, this is uh, one of the African children and tell them, you know what, this, this one's don't belong here. I know the majority of your work that you do that I'm a fan of, I'm a student of, is bonding the parents and the children that we are raising here in America. Mm-hmm. How uh, the conversations that you've had on your platform, on your space, are so needed. They are so important to all of us. I would encourage anybody who's listening and watching to go to Pasapasa podcast and listen to the conversation of the children, the conversation of the parents, 
from your experience raising your children here, what advice would you give us in navigating this journey of understanding our children's perspective and our children understanding us? Yeah, um, it's not something easy, like I said, you know, when it comes to, you know, raising the children in this country, because we, as an immigrant, we only know how we were raised. We only know from our own culture, from the experience that we had from our individual country. When you look at the Asian community, it's no different from African immigrant community. When you look at, you know, Latino community is no different from African immigrant community in terms of understanding that the cultural background that we possess is what we use in raising our children, is what we know on how to raise our children on, is what our own parents pass down to us. That's what we understand. But in this country, it's completely different. This is a country where parents have to understand that we need to create a dialogue we need to allow dialogue between parents and the children. We need to have, a, 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 you know, create a, a family dynamics whereby children will be free to, you know, have conversation with us. You know, we all grew up back home whereby parents only give direction, tell you what to do. You cannot actually have a feedback or what you think about the process or have your own separate opinion than what your parents is actually telling you to do. But in this country, it's completely different. So it's a place where we have to have that open dialogue, that open space with our children. I first started, you know, community conversation in 2017, whereby I had many of our children from diverse background as panelists come and talk about their struggle, what it is to grow up in this country. Mm-hmm. Because like I've been saying, in terms of understanding that as an African, we only have immigrant experience, we don't have black experience. We could tell these children, we want you to go to school, be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, but then they have to face the whole society in itself. And if I am not prepared as a parent to understand the dynamics of this society, there's no way of me being able to advise them. I could be a parent who went to school and study. I could have a PhD. I could have all these degrees behind my back, behind my name. But then there's another dynamics that comes with raising these children in this country as an African, as an immigrant. So first is to create open dialogue, to be able to allow our children to express themselves, to learn to listen to their perspectives. Because without that, then they will seek other people on the outside that they could talk to. Because back home, you and I growing up back home, I don't care whether you are from East Africa, West Africa, South Africa, there's a similarity in the culture. Yes. If your parents, you know, discipline you or they say something, you go and tell your friend, they say, oh, it happens to me too. So it's a collective value system that we have back home. But here, your value system, your religion, your, your, your everything that you think you have that is unique is within your household. The next door neighbor have something completely different. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Whether you are in the neighborhood of minority, you know, they have something completely different from what you have. You might be one of those parents that you tell your children, listen, you know, when you come home, you have to do your own work. You have to do A, B, C, and D, and then go to bed. Another parent's household may be completely different. The way they establish rules in their house. And those are the kids that your children will be with most of the time of the day. And you pray and hope that they intermingle with the right set of people. But when we have that open dialogue, when the child is going through something, they will be able to feel free to approach us and talk to us about it. So back to when I used to have the dialogue within the community, the youngest I ever had was a 19-year-old person. Most of them were old. And, you know, most of the people as audience were fellow first or second generation, as well as some parents. And when many of the people were listening to the conversation, they couldn't believe it. Some of them couldn't believe that the children of Africa are feeling this way towards their parents. Many parents who were present, you know, they understand. And some were, they push back. <laughs> Usually when I have those forums, when I have those forums, I'm always behind the, the uh, children. I say, say what you have to say. If they, those parents want to argue with me, I will be the one to confront, you know, let them confront me. <laughs> yeah. But what I always preach to so many of our children is, you know, be respectful when you're expressing your, you know, whatever you're going through. Because one of the key part of our culture that we cannot deny is respect for parents and the elders. A hundred percent. So even though you, uh-huh, even though you want to, you know, talk about, you know, what you may be going through or you want to, you know, present something to your parents or elders of the community, present it in a respectful manner. So it's, it's a lot as parents. We come also come from culture where we don't believe in getting our children involved in extracurriculum activities. Whereby it's all about academics. But in this country, it's completely different. We have to find out what, in order to occupy their time too. In order to occupy their time. After school, what other activities can I put my children into? To engage them, to intermingle with children who share almost the same ideas. So it's a whole lot that I could (laughs) talk about. And we have to educate ourselves about the issue of race in America. We parents too have to to allow our children to diversify their friends, friendship, you know, circle. Because like you work in a corporate America now, you work with black, white, people of different backgrounds. And how do they navigate through that if they are in isolation or they only uh, navigate through African immigrant community whereby they go to school, you know, with other people uh, from within the neighborhood where they are. And then when they go to church, it's mostly African church. When they have to pick friends, is they go into their cousin's house, their this house and that house. That's all. No, nothing else. So we too have to be much more open 
to navigate through this society in itself. Because even it affects many of us who are, you know, parents as well. I have some of my friends who are already grandparents because when I, I was telling somebody this story, when I came to this country, I didn't have my children until over 10 years later, compared to some people who came and immediately they have children or they brought those children from home. And it's difficult for them to try to adjust and say, you know, what is this child, what is this about race when they're trying to struggle to make ends meet? Some people came in, they don't even have any papers. They, you know, they're doing all jobs. They're trying to, you know, work hard to provide for the children. You know, they don't have the time to think about, you know, all these race things and all that. And they will tell the kids, just behave yourself in school. Just follow rules. Yes, for sure. But it's beyond that. <laughs> it's a lot. It, it, it is hard for um, for us parents as immigrants because, like we were saying before, we not only navigating our fellow African Americans or our fellow race, and mm-hmm. then we have to be able to have those conversations with our children about being black, about being an immigrant uh, or a child of an immigrant on how you should behave. Mm-hmm. It just brings it to a whole different level. I truly wanted to have this conversation with you because a lot of us come here and start building a life, start to have children. And I love what you say on the conversation you had with Jamal, that some of us, we are still visitors. We still consider ourselves as visiting. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. you've been here 10, 20 years. When does that end as to mm-hmm. feeling like this is your home mm-hmm. for now and behaving like this is your home and start mm-hmm. really having those deep conversations with your children? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because also, like I said, if you, as an immigrant with an immigrant experience, if you've never been exposed to those conversations about issue of race, many immigrant parents may tell their children, just ignore them. You have situation of many children, you know, who are in school, that parents sometimes, um, they might be scared to even go to school to advocate for their children. Yeah. Instead of advocating, they just tell the kid, just ignore them. Don't, you know, if they are making fun of you or anything, just ignore them. But, you know, it's so much of what you can ignore. You don't know how that impacts that child emotionally. So, and that comes with also educating the community, which sometimes it could be difficult to gather our people together when it comes to you know, bringing parents together and telling them we need to talk about all these things because it's important. How do you help your children navigate school in, within school environment? How do you empower them emotionally and academically? If a child is, you know, um, is being challenged in school emotionally, whereby the self-esteem is very low, that child may be a student. Okay, might be scoring very high. Within no time, the, that grade, the grades may drop. Yes. Because you have to be emotionally balanced in order for you to think about, you know, doing well in class. A lot you know? of us have um, generational trauma. Mm-hmm. How have you been able to deal, I guess, 
how can people navigate that? Because the the thing about generational trauma is to goes from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us immigrants bring that with us. And then our kids are wondering what's really happening with us without understanding that that's generational trauma, even the way we parent. Mm-hmm. That is very difficult unless people are open to speak up and recognize that they actually, whatever they are experiencing, emotionally or their PTSD, you know, whatever it is that they experience, interge- you know, generational trauma that they need to deal with it. If you recognize it, then you could say, I'm going to seek help. I'm going to seek, you know, therapy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, have to talk to somebody. Yeah. But when you, you are dealing with majority of the people who does not consider that to be even traumatic. Yeah. But they look at it that is their upbringing. That's why you see some African parents may say, oh, you think what you went through before was a big deal. You don't know what I went through when I was back home. Mm-hmm. I, there were uh, friends that I have that, um, just a quick story. Their niece was complaining about the parents to them, to the, you know, to, to, to this family member. And instead of them acknowledging what this young girl was saying, what they said was, well, you know, you you, you are in America, you don't have to go out and fetch water. You don't have to go and, you know, do a lot of all these things that we were doing back home, okay? Everything, you you turn on the light is on for you. You do this, everything is there for you. So what are you complaining about? And thank God I was there at that time and I was able to stop them in their track. And I said... You are talking about that experience, but you're doing it in a, you did it in an environment that is so common way of life back home. Mm-hmm. What this child is dealing with is different from what you were dealing with back home. When you were back home, you were not dealing with issue of being bullied in school. Even if you're being bullied in school back home, parents call each other and they resolve everything. Because if, if, if your child is being bullied back home, or being beaten up by somebody in front of, or even many adults within the community will separate them from fighting. Yeah. And if they continue to fight, you could actually go and ask that person and say, who is the parents of this child who continue to taunt my child? <laughs> yes, yes, for Okay, sure. somebody will point where that par- parents of that child is, and you could easily approach them and resolve the problem. But here is completely different. This is what I had to bring up to these two aunts who are, you know, dismissing this child's issue. So when we as community, we don't even see our own trauma that we went through or the trauma that we continue to go through in this country, being an immigrant, whereby you go to work where you're being talked down to or you have certain qualification that you could have, you know, your educational background should have been in maybe managerial position and they never get you promoted mm-hmm. and you are among the people who talk down at you every day that's another trauma that we are not acknowledging or recognizing and many of us we might go to our churches mosque and all these gatherings some of us are in isolation we are in isolation like dr bukhari said because we have not 
not even integrated in this society. No. To have a full integration is different from just going to school, having your diploma or working. It's also, what other things do I really enjoy in this society that I could tap on? Yeah. Do I have to be among Nigerians all the time? Or are we around South Africans or around, you know, the people from East Africa all the time? Yeah. Let me see what else that I enjoy. Do I enjoy? Let me even t- try going to the theater. Yeah. Okay, let me try music concert. <laughs> I've been to, uh, there's a musician in my, in, in, from Nigeria. Since I've been in this country, you know, they come, they play at Central Park. Some, yeah. you have, you know, major musician, yeah. you know, yeah. Sonia Ade, when Fela was alive, used to play. I go. But when you go to those concerts, instead of you seeing more Nigerians, more Africans, you see mostly white people. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I remember, some... <laughs> yeah. I remember going to Angelique's concert and it was mostly white people. Yeah. I, yeah. I went there at Central Park, you know, I think about a few years ago that she came and played. Okay. Yeah. I went there. It was mostly white people. Okay. So yeah. when do we also break away from our shell and see what it is that we could tap into instead of living in isolation ourselves? So it's the recognition that needs to take place. But in many cases, a lot of our people don't really switch to that recognition to say, you know what, I think I'm having a problem with this emotion. Let me, like you said, intergenerational trauma. I think what I'm feeling is the, what I felt growing up back home. Let me seek therapy. Let me look for somebody who I could talk to. So that whatever that I went through won't be shedding over to my or my children well said so with this show i really needed to find things or services that provide healing in our journey as immigrants because of what i've gone through myself it lives so much in you just being an immigrant going through the immigration system and then going through the world of corporate world and also racism without knowing it's racism sometimes a lot of the times i've experienced racism now that i go uh, um I, I think about it and even me just talking to you there were so many instances that i didn't really recognize that i was being <laughs> racially <laughs> profiled sometimes and it, it was it's so many occasions. So when I I sit down and just think about what I've gone what I've gone through, I needed to bring some type of service, which is better help. And for anybody who's listening, we do have better help with this platform, and you can talk to somebody who will listen and actually help you. Because a lot of us, as much as we want to talk to our communities, as much as we want to talk to one another, we all have issues. And a lot of our people minimize how we feel. Mm-hmm. Because when you go through trauma, for everybody, trauma is different levels. Somebody has to, I guess, hit you against the wall and everything is visible that, you know, you were swollen and they're like, oh yes, she's been beat up. But they also forget that there's also verbal abuse. 
they also forget that there's trauma from your parents, maybe the way you were raised, mm-hmm. or trauma from your employment, from your employer being mm-hmm. talked down to you, being discriminated against because mm-hmm. whatever. So having better help, I hope for somebody who's listening, they can utilize it. It's a service that's being provided for us. If you're someone out there that needs to speak to someone, take advantage of it. You 10% off of your first month. Try it out. Talk to someone that's going to help you. I am so grateful for the service that you do and the work that you're doing for us in the community. Your forum, your blog itself. I had to stop myself because I just kept going and reading and reading. <laughs> your writing is amazing. Thank and you. I, I, the reviews that you have on the books that you are reviewing, amazing. Thank amazing. you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Anything else that I might have not asked you that you would like to share with our communities? Yeah, I just want us, uh, as an African immigrant, uh, we need to uh, understand that collectively we need to come together as one. Because when you look at the Latino, they have diversity. Yeah. Of the Latino, you know, they have Puerto Rican, Dominican, Mexicans, name it. But when they pull together, they pull together as one. So that because that's the way to move forward in this country, collectively. And the same thing with the Asians, they move together as one. When they want certain changes to take place in their community. So we as as African immigrants, we need to collectively move together as one. No matter what religious background or the country someone came from. Because nobody cares whether you're a Nigerian or you are Ghanaian, or you are from Zambia, Zimbabwe, all they see is an African. Yeah. Uh So we need to understand that that collectively, we need to bring ourselves together, okay? Reach out to one another and see how we can help one another. Because, you know, even with many of our children who were born here, brought here at a very young age, many of them are in different areas of specialties. Like you talk about better health, uh, you know, in terms of the therapy. Many of them who are in that area come back to the community. Yeah. And educate people about the importance of therapy. You have so many of our family that their parents may not understand that this child is going through mental health crisis. So how can... It's a taboo to talk about. Yes, it's a taboo. So when you... As a child of an immigrant, you are in that area, you are in that field. Why can't you approach your community? And don't limit yourself only to Nigerians, only to, you know, Ghanaians, only to all these other groups. Mm-hmm. Open it up and come to the, and educate parents about mental health awareness, about how to understand that, okay, this child needs help. How can I get help for that child? Because if they, you attack all those issues earlier on, the child is getting treatment. From that treatment that they're having therapy for the child, or maybe the child that needs medication is taking it, it will reduce the trauma that is going on within the household. Because at one point, through therapy too, they could have family session. 
oh, where thereby the therapist will ask, you know, bring the parents in and say, okay, we uh, we need to talk more about this. In order for your child to continue to heal, there's certain things you have to change. There's certain way you need to relate more to your child. Yeah. So it's through that that we could heal, you know, whatever it is that, you know, is going through, we're going through within the same household. So we need many of our children in all these different fields. <laughs> like I always say on my podcast, I'm not inviting people to just come and show off your your diploma and all that stuff. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Because when I started my conversation within the community, many people are already doing that. You you go to different, uh, you know, event. Oh, the successful African person here, the successful Nigerian. <laughs> the successful, you know, when are we going to start talking about problems? The real, uh, real conversation. The, the real conversation. You're yeah. talking about how many, so it's like a recycle. The same set of people you uh, uh, invited three years ago, you're still inviting them. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not interested in all those things. And we are not dealing with issues. That other communities already dealing with. Yeah. And they find a solution. You know, they find a solution to find out, okay, you know, we need these services uniquely to us as an Af- as African immigrant. Yes. So that that's 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 part of what we need to understand. That's just what I want to contribute as a fine. <laughs> Why not say, you know? No, no, it's it's needed. The conversations are needed. We can't pray away everything because um, we all talk about praying. I'm a woman of faith. I pray every single day. But there's certain things that I cannot pray away. That's why there's professionals that are helping me cope, giving me the tools that I need. Giving, like When I first started to talk about therapy, I was even feeling ashamed about it because people are going to see me uh, different, that there's something wrong with her. But I wanted to remove the stigma away from seeking help. Like, we can seek help and be okay and be be fine about talking about therapy, Mm -hmm. that I'm not okay right now. I Mm -hmm. want to be able to be okay with with myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm so glad that we can talk about uh, therapy freely and mental health hopefully is going to be something that's going to be that we talk about continuously in our community and not feel judged and not feel mm-hmm. stigmatized about it and yeah. so I, I, I am so glad that we are able yeah. to talk about it yeah yeah we have to you know we have to actually even some of the uh, children or Kids from different uh, background who are so-called unquote, they are doing well. Okay, they're doing well, they're going to work and everything, but there's so many other things that they're going through. So by them seeking help, seeking therapy, there's nothing is confidential. Yeah. Okay, compared to talking to your pastor or your imam, we may talk to other people about, you know, whatever, and they are not experts in that field. Sure. Even... Uh, among the same thing happens among the minority community here, African American, other people of color, whereby they think seeking therapy is a taboo. But now they're training even clergy, you know, uh, pastors to understand that this is beyond prayer. You could pray with that person, but they need professional help. 
yeah. in order for them to heal. Because, you know, this brain is more complex than your physical body. Yeah. You know, so, and it needs help. It's for us to seek that help for our people. You know, so thank you so much. No, no problem. What motivates you? What gets you up to do all of this amazing work for all of us? Well, you know, what motivates me? I was saying, you know, (laughs) I was telling someone. About uh, 15 years ago, I started going to the gym because, you know, I can't miss my gym Monday through Thursday. Before going to, you know, (laughs) going to work, I get up, I go to the gym, do my workout and everything and I come back home. But what actually, and for me doing that, actually put my mind in the right space. You know, it puts my mind in the right space. And what also motivates me is also seeing the betterment of humanity of others. Mm-hmm. Okay, looking at individual, each one of us that, you know, we could do better. We could give the, the best because what motivates me is when I see some people doing well, when I see community thriving, when I see our children growing, not only, you know, materially, but yeah. also emotionally. Also, okay, intellectually, you know, that they're growing. They have connection with other human beings. And saying that, you know what, I connect with you, you connect with me. All those things keep me going. To see the humanity in other people. To say that we could do better. We will help each other out. Because you could, you know, we have some of some people here whereby they uh, strive to, you know, I want to reach certain goal, I want to make certain salary. Somebody is always making more than another person. Yes. And somebody is always making less. But the most important thing is that within you, the satisfaction, living a life of good enough. Mm. I love that. Uh Uh-huh good enough life that you know what my life is good enough and trying to extend that to other people and extend my hand whoever needs help help as much as I can love it love it Ah! (laughs) Pasa Pasa how can people listen to Pasa Pasa how can we find you how can we support you well, Pansa Pansa is on everywhere you listen to podcasts. Just Google Pansa Pansa conversation. It will come up anywhere you listen to podcasts is right there. I will share my email address. Yeah. Talk at pansapansa.com. Talk at Pansa. Uh-huh. Then I also have another, you know, because that email sometimes go crazy. So, um, then I have talk pansapansa at gmail.com. Is also is also there, and uh, you could follow me on Instagram, Pansa Forum. You could also follow me, but you know, and I'm willing to have conversation if you think you're expert in mental health, in many other things that we could have conversation to educate our community on. I'm open to anybody having that conversation. So because we have to keep the conversation going, even in educational system, how do we? address inadequacy in terms of the kind of education that our children are being received mm-hmm. you know and empower parents as well those are the issues that we need to talk about so follow me on <laughs> you know send me email yeah. so thank you so much for having me 
it's an honor to have you here. Last question. You've been here for some time, seen a lot, you've been through a lot, and you have achieved a lot as well. Have you found your concrete pastures? Yes. <laughs> That's what it is. Pansa is my concrete pasture. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. <laughs> That's, you know, helping, helping the yeah. community, growing our community. Not only within our community, humanity in itself. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And sharing goodness in other people, trying to bring the goodness in other people, caring for other people. That's my own concrete pasture. I love it. It's been an honor. I couldn't wait to have this conversation. I know we've been trying to have a meeting, to have a conversation, and I'm so excited that it finally happened. I'm your student of your platform, your forum, and everything you are doing. I encourage anybody who's listening, please go to Pasa Pasa forum. There's so much material. Her library is so diverse and there's so much to learn from her blog. Last night I was, I gotta go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) It was so good. The books that are there, the guests, the lineup of the guests. Yeah, there's just so much to learn and absorb and thank you. Thank, Thank you so, you so much. much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. With, I, I, I've been listening to your podcast anyway. I love your conversation. You know, you are so calm and collected. <laughs> I, get so, <laughs> I, I get so loud sometimes. I get so, you know, <laughs> but you're so calm, you know, the way you have your conversation. I love the guests that you have on your shows and Thank I will continue you. to listen to you as well. Thank you so much. I, I'm always, we learn from one another. You know, I'm also, yes. also learning from you as well so thank you for the job you're doing and uh, being a parent raising children by yourself and doing all this other stuff and i'm here let me know you understand me mine is grown you know i could wrap yours on my waist on this side and put another one on my waist on the other side (laughs) yes definitely thank you so much it's such, such a huge compliment you're right here you're in new york i'm so grateful that you're in new york i'll just drive to your house (laughs) 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 yeah i'll just take the train or drive to your house it's right there so i appreciate you for being here that's it for this episode thank you again for lending us your ears it's truly an honor to save each and every dreamer you can continue to support us by liking sharing and following us on our social media pages the links are all in the show notes we have so many exciting projects and ventures in store for you until next time keep dreaming